Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm one half of the team of hosts here, Bill, and we're grateful for this chance to, to have you with us today to enjoy this conversation. Today on the podcast, we've got a gentleman by the name of Spencer Wright. Uh, Spencer, you and I have talked before. Mikkel is uh, new to knowing you, but we wanted to talk today about like rational thinking. And you've got some. You, I know you've published a book. I want you to tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we can kind of jump into uh, talking about what it means to be kind of a rational, logical thinker. Sure. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I am Spencer Wright, and I haven't met Mikkel before. So hello, Mikkel. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice and, to meet you. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I wrote a book called How to Think, uh, why, why Rational and Faith-Based Thinking are Incompatible. Uh, and uh, so I kind of go in and talk about why the, the many ways in which those two modes of thinking are actually not just different ways of thinking, but are actually completely incompatible ways of thinking. And that's not to say that a rational, uh, you know, an otherwise rational, per, you know, smart person, thinking person can't also be religious. Beautiful, beautiful. So you and I have had conversations before. Again, Mikkel's kind of new to knowing you. And, and so I think some of these concepts will kind of be really cool to kind of talk about again. Um, and, and I understand too, like you've sent us an outline. We want to kind of go through that and, and touch on some of these things. But uh, the first thing you lead off with is this idea of Eastern Enlightenment versus Western Enlightenment versus Romanticism. What do you mean by that? So uh, a lot of times when the, the, the idea of Eastern Enlightenment and Western Enlightenment are compared to one another, they're generally contrasted. They're kind of shown as being two sort of completely different concepts or ideas. Um, but what I want to talk about is how they're actually very similar and, in fact, may even be exactly the same thing. Um, and so probably to do that, um, what we need to do is kind of go through the, the nomenclature, make sure everybody's on the same page as to what we're talking about with each one of these things. So from that point forward, Spencer goes into a diatribe about Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy. And the point Spencer makes, and, I, and I'm shortening it up because we spend about the next 45, 50 minutes kind of hammering out this point. But I want to get to the meat of the conversation, which is where I give some pushback to Spencer. You're going to notice here at some point that uh, Mikkel has to drop off the call. Uh, she has to uh, go tackle some things at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so it's just me and Spence finish, finishing up the conversation. Um, but Spencer Wright, who I respect deeply, goes into this conversation about Eastern philosophy uh, versus Western philosophy. And the main point that he makes that is if we're going to be rational thinkers, romanticism, right, is this emotional connection to an answer. Whereas Eastern and Western philosophy, even though they are different uh, methodology, different types of thought, the idea or the goal is to shed one ego. And that as one begins to become aware of one's ego and sheds uh, one's ego, 
then one is now capable of looking at their beliefs and dissecting them in a way that imposes more rationality. That the moment I, I see my ego and I see my biases and I can separate myself from them, like, oh, there's my ego over there. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, that my ego is over there. The moment I see my ego is separate or distanced from me and I'm aware of what it is and what it does, I now can start to tackle my beliefs sensing that uh, that those beliefs that I do have biases that make me hold on to them and I now can look like, okay, are these really rational? Are these really productive? Are these Are these beliefs real just because I want them to be real? And at some point here, early in the conversation, I start to give some pushback to Spencer. That pushback revolves around a point in our conversation where we are discussing how feasible it is to be able to be uh, away and outside of and separate from one's ego uh, as a, in a in a totality rather than just from here and there as we deal with things. And I think the human mind, and Mikkel jumps into this as well, is so complex that as much as all of us on this side of awakeness are trying to get to a place where we are shedding pieces and parts of our ego, we debate the healthiness of uh, shedding uh, one's ego completely as a human being. Let's go to that point in the conversation. Yeah. And and so I, and I don't want to, I don't want you to perceive me as being um, offensive to you, Spencer. I want to, I want to, Here's my here's my worry as we're having this conversation we're having we're spending this time on meditation and I think I get what you're doing which is saying that look the idea behind meditation in eastern philosophy is that we begin to see how much of ourself is ego and how much of our ego cuz our ego is what creates all of our biases right it creates the wanting something to be a certain way it wants it wants things to be uh, categorized. It wants things to be labeled. It wants things to go in certain kinds of boxes. And so it's our ego that prevents us from going where the data leads. It's our ego that keeps us holding on to beliefs, especially those beliefs that are central to our identity. And and so you're you're speaking here at length about like meditation as a way in which to begin to see face-to-face your ego and to sense how much control it has over the way you decide to do things, the beliefs you hold, um, the sides you take in an argument. And and now we have to get to a place where we kind of see it and start to, as Mikkel's saying, we can't let it go completely because it, it holds major importance in certain components of our life, but also to see it enough that we're able to kind of let go of it at times when we're holding on to a belief or a perspective and it's hurting us. It's unnecessary. It's we, we, we hold on to it as true and it really isn't. And so it seems like meditation here is kind of a, um, a way of which to show us that, that ego is something that's out there and we've got to see it and we've got to deal with it. Um, but, but now seeing that, like, how do we, how do we start to, handle situations where, so I was just listening again, listen to the podcast this morning where they're talking about politics and my mom and dad are huge supporters of a certain politician and they are just, it doesn't matter what comes out about this person. doesn't matter what is said about this person. doesn't matter what the, 
where the data goes on what this person is doing or how they're behaving, they are absolutely in favor of this person no matter what. And you can see it's it's once you plant yourself into a position and you take it up and you're holding on to it and you're dead set that that's going to be your position, it is so damn hard, Spencer, to get people to change their mind. It is so damn hard to get people to go like, oh, yeah, you're right. There's some evidence here that leads to a different conclusion and your evidence is actually stronger than my evidence. How do we begin to kind of, I don't know, I don't think we can get other people to do it. Each one of us on our own has to come face to face with our own level of rational thinking and improve it on our own without somebody else kind of tearing the scaffolding down. Um, how, do, how do we get into the nuts and bolts of starting to, to be a more rational thinker? Yes, and I, I, I totally agree with what you just said about uh, we can't tear down the scaffolding for other people, that it's essentially, this is a process that we have to take for ourselves, and it really does start from that motivation. It starts from what is it that you actually want, and, I, and this is why I agree with Mikkel that it's like we, 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 we can't completely remove ego from the equation in that we have to want something. In fact, even like the, the Dalai Lama kind of makes this joke sometimes. It goes, well, if you, if you want to achieve enlightenment, how do you do that if you don't want to achieve enlightenment? Right? It's like there's, there's got to be some sort of motivation that starts you on the path of meditation in the first place. If you're not, if you have no motivation to sit down and meditate, you're not going to sit down and meditate. And so obviously there requires some sort of motivation that says, I, I want to start this, this process. But that want, I think, is the, the key in this. The, the what is it that you want out of this is the key to what path you're going to take, whether it's more like the way that you're describing your parents with, um, uh, regardless of the facts, it makes no difference. They just, they just want to believe this guy or uh, whether or not they are looking for the truth, whether I want to lollipops to be the cure for cancer or whether I want to just find the cure for cancer. What is the cure for cancer? Well, my, my desire for it to be lollipops doesn't change the fact that, well, again, lollipops may cure cancer, but it has nothing to do with my desire for lollipops to change cancer, cure cancer. It has to do with the nature of reality. It has to do with whether lollipops actually cure cancer. And so I think that the, the, uh, the, the two paths can almost be summed up in one of two ways, and I and I that there's the there's the path of what I like to call uh, happiness, and the path of what I like to call truth, and uh, and I think that what people that this is almost like a dividing line that's kind of hard to have both of these at the same time. That uh, and what I, what I mean by this, and I don't mean that you can't be both happy and and land on the truth, I think that your goal, what you're actually setting out to achieve in the first place, uh, is sometimes thwarted by the other path. So like with the lollipop thing, uh, if I really, really want lollipops to be the cure for cancer, I may spend the rest of my life trying to prove that lollipops cure cancer. Uh, whereas, whereas if I'm going on the path of what cures cancer, the answer may not be lollipops. And so I just have to accept that's the reality of the situation. But the motivation that draws me from one direction or the other uh, is, is essentially what, is, what decides the path that I'm going to travel on in the first place. Um, I uh, had just had a conversation recently with somebody talking about uh, whether they would rather choose to be happy or, you know, or, to, or to land on the truth, what is, what is actually the truth. 
And their, their essential argument was that if a, if a belief doesn't make them happy, then they don't want to adopt that belief. That for them, the goal is to be happy. I only want to adopt beliefs that make me happy. So the idea, you know, just using this lollipop idea, that it's not really about whether lollipops cure cancer, it's whether the idea that lollipops cures cancer makes me happy, and then they will adopt that belief. And so all of the other facts, everything else that you can possibly say about lollipops and cancer are completely irrelevant to their goal. And so in that, in that regard, it sounds a lot like your parents in that doesn't matter. It doesn't, the facts don't matter. All that matters is I want to be happy. This belief makes me happy. And therefore I adopt that belief as true. Yeah. So sorting through that, I mean, I, I think we're all a mix of both in that we all want to be content and happy in life. Um, and some of our beliefs that aren't true, but we don't quite yet know they're not true. They bring us happiness and comfort. And so we choose to continue holding those beliefs. Uh, I'll give an example. We have a good friend, Mikel and I have a good friend named Chris. And Chris is making a joke with uh, her and I. We were talking about our group of friends. And she made, or, uh, he made the comment, he said, you know, Bill, if you got caught in a house fire and you had third degree burns, you'd be out of our friend group. And, and it was funny. It was, it was a funny um, joke that, that points to the truth, which is what is reality? Like even friendships aren't necessarily real. They're not, because what I mean by that is that the moment Mikkel gets in a car accident and she's a paraplegic, suddenly I'm not calling her as often. I might show up a bunch in the first month. I might show up a little less in the second. And, and by a year later, Mikkel and I aren't even hanging out that much. And so we tell ourselves stories about what our world looks like. So for instance, Mikkel is my best friend. And in, in telling that story, like, I feel that, I think that, I believe that. But the reality of what, what is real in the labels we give to everything, it, it all of a sudden gets really messy when you start diving into like, what is this real thing right in front of me? Um, I think all human beings want to sacrifice deconstructing their entire world in order to maintain some level of contentment and happiness. And so we allow these stories to exist about what our relationships are or what our beliefs are. And so I think it's near impossible to get somebody to completely shed all of that, all those false I don't know, that's not even the right word, to shed all of these kinds of beliefs that aren't based in in absolute reality. And and so I don't know how you get a human being, because I, I think you're pointing to something which is valuable. When I look at our listeners, our listeners are deconstructing religious systems. Our listeners are, when I look at our listeners and and what they're wrestling with, they they are trying to become some level of enlightened they want to become awake. They want to be aware of their ego and, their, and do shadow work. They, they want to be sensitive to the diversity in others and to let go of some of their prejudices and bigotry. Um, they want to see the world more like it really is. And yet I don't think there's a way to completely let go of the false reality that all of us have in our heads. And so I don't know how, where you come down, Spencer, on trying to help, because I, I think what you're doing is valuable. And I also think that it, it that we can never really get there. Your thoughts maybe on kind of trying to parse out maintaining some level of labels and ego that's healthy versus 
um, deconstructing your your entire worldview to the point where you only go where the data goes and you deal with things as they really are. And, and I think in some level, there is a, a loss of happiness in doing some of that. Yes. And I actually think that you hit exactly the point here, which is, um, so what do you do with the fact that when reality maybe doesn't make you happy? What, 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 what do I, so I, I, I kind of have this, I use this analogy frequently with people where I say, okay, so winning the lottery would be awesome. And may, maybe it wouldn't be awesome, but you know, let me find that out for myself, right? Uh, if I won $300 million, I'd love to see how awful winning the lottery was. But, um, but I haven't won the lottery. Like the, the, the objective fact is I, I don't even play the lottery. I, so there's, you can't win if you don't play. And, uh, I, uh, there's there's no way I can actually win the lottery because I don't even believe in the statistical probability of winning the lottery. And so, uh, but the analogy would be that some people kind of live their life as though they have won the lottery, that they are the chosen one who is, who is uh, going to win the lottery and they kind of live their life as though that the winning of the lottery is factually true. And maybe that brings them all the joy in the world. And then they kind of look at somebody like me and say, well, you're kind of just living your life in sort of this, uh, you know, be, well, sure. Yeah. We all know that I haven't won the lottery and you haven't won the lottery. When we look at the objective facts, we can look at our bank accounts and see that we didn't win the lottery. Um, but why not, live in that sort of delusion where you are kind of living in this kind of happiness of believing that you have won the lottery, even though it goes against the, you know, the objective empirical facts. And so the, the way that I approach this is that I say, well, there's certainly, just as you said, there's kind of a, there's kind of a loss of, of uh, kind of that delusional happiness that, that comes with just saying, hey, you know what, I'm just looking at the facts. I'm just looking at the reality that I haven't won the lottery, statistically speaking. I'm not going to win the lottery. And maybe that is associated with a, with a little bit of unhappiness or a little bit of uh, kind of uh, resignation, sadness that I, I may never win the lottery. But there's also another kind of happiness that comes from that sort of resignation, that to even kind of think that resignation and happiness are sort of intertwined in this way to say that because I understand how reality works, I can now in this, in this regard, anyway, um, I can now go out and do other things with that knowledge to make my life easier, to make my life simpler. And that when I'm able to actually kind of go with the flow of reality to work with reality as it really behaves as opposed to how I wish it to behave, it actually makes my life a lot simpler and easier than if I were to spend my whole life kind of living in sort of a delusion of, of how I wish reality were working. And so there is kind of that, the, the, the question that starts out to say, would you rather be happy in your belief, in your, you know, kind of beliefs that are probably not, you know, matching reality, or would you rather be more concerned about the truth? And you can say that, well, going out on the truth has, you know, there's, there's the possibility that you may actually find out something that makes you unhappy. You may not be happy with what you find, but by finding the way that reality actually works, your life becomes simpler and easier. And there is a happiness that comes along with that. Um, yeah. It, and I, and I agree with you and I disagree with you. So I agree with you that if we, um, take positions in our life that are irrational and 
those positions are causing undue trauma, they're unhealthy, they, they do damage to uh, us in some way, whether we recognize it or not, then I think it's better that we wake up from that delusion and we take control back in our life. And, and yet, I can look at certain delusions and say that they were beneficial to me when I held them. And so I'll give an example. I think the easy one, Santa Claus. Santa Claus isn't real. There, there isn't a, a figure who lives at the North Pole. I know, right? I'm breaking, I'm breaking your bubble. There's, there's not this person who lives at the North Pole who delivers presents once a year all across the globe. And yet when I was a six-year-old kid, a seven-year-old kid, Santa Claus was magical, and, and that myth was beneficial to me. And I think when we're younger, specifically when we're younger, there are myths about what America is. There is myths about what a family is. There are myths about um, what, what a friendship is. Like, like, and those myths are beneficial to us even as we hold them as true, and they are are some level of delusion. And and so I'm I'm trying to I know I'm derailing you a little bit Spencer and I'm I'm doing this somewhat intentionally. I want to I want to get off into some spaces maybe where we kind of just have a natural conversation about this. But there are some delusions maybe worth holding at certain points in our life and the question becomes at what point is it now healthy to move out of that delusion and to grab more onto what what is real or what it re- what is reality and and so I, I don't agree with you that it seems to be there seems to be this argument from you that we should we should all try to get as close to reality as we possibly can at all times and and I don't know that we humans are designed to do that in a healthy way I think there are times where we have to hold on to delusions at least at earlier stages of life and, and earlier stages of thinking, and some people never move into a space where they're able to, in a healthy way, deconstruct their delusion. Yes, and and I actually I actually agree somewhat with your uh, objection. Um, I I think that there is definitely a benefit. Like the like the, the person who believes that they won the lottery, even though they haven't objectively won the lottery. There, there's certainly a benefit to what they, to their belief, to their false belief. Otherwise, they wouldn't hold it, right? So there's, there's, there's something that they are gaining from that that uh, is more valuable to them than to accepting the reality that they haven't won the, uh, won the lottery. Uh, just as we're talking about this, I was thinking about uh, a, a speech that Richard Feynman, a uh, physicist, had given uh, called "Cargo Cult Science." I, I love this, uh, this speech that he gave. But in there, he's talking about uh, kind of the, the, the Pacific Island uh, cargo cult religions that uh, essentially what they do is they, they build, you know, uh, radio towers out of bamboo and put, put coconuts on their ears like headphones and whatnot to call down uh, the, the, the planes uh, that brought the supplies essentially you know the, the the military planes at one point were bringing in these supplies and so they believed that it was the the kind of the figure 
of these the 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 earphones is what actually brought the supplies in, and so they they sort of ended up creating uh, a, a, a a false belief of sorts about how. Uh, military planes with supplies are called down, right? And so obviously we know you can't build a bamboo tower and put coconuts on your ears and, and make a, a, a radio call to an airplane. That's not how, how radio signals work. However, there's still something that is, that is beneficial to, to the, the, the people, like the, the John Fromm religion or whatever, that they believe in the, 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 the power, the efficacy of putting coconuts on your ears and 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 going through the motions of, of you know the the ritual of sort of calling down the 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 planes, right? And so obviously, if they weren't gaining something from this, they're obviously what they're not gaining is planes coming and bringing supplies, but they are gaining something. And if they weren't gaining that something, they wouldn't do it, right? They, 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 the, 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 the act of doing that is obviously giving them some sort of benefit that wouldn't come from not doing that. Um, and so I, I don't want to take away what benefit is given to, those, to, to somebody who puts coconuts on their ears and goes through the motions of believing that it's going to, to cause uh, you know, military supply planes to come down. What I'm suggesting, though, is if they just understood how radio signals actually worked, their life, what they're actually looking for, what they're actually trying to achieve in life, would actually, uh, they, they could actually make that happen instead of going through the motions and the ritual of how things don't actually work. Like with the, the lollipop situation, it may bring somebody great joy. It may bring somebody great happiness and, and peace in their life to believe that lollipops cure cancer. But there's a greater joy from curing cancer. And so I think that even though we, we certainly can gain something from false beliefs, there is a greater joy. There's something, there's something more powerful that comes from actually understanding how reality works and using that to, to actually achieve what it is that you were wishing the ritual would achieve. So, uh, so I agree. I agree that there's some sort of benefit. There, there is a benefit. There's a benefit to a kid who believes in Santa Claus. There's a, there's a benefit to the John Fromm religion where they, where they put coconuts on their ears. But I'm saying it's actually not the benefit that they're probably wishing that it was. Yeah. And, and yet none of us do a very good job. Mo- I should say that. Most of us, most of the time, don't do a very good job of having introspection on our beliefs, on the perspectives that we hold until there's some level of discomfort. Like like even the best of us as rational thinkers rarely go into deconstructing our belief until something about that belief gets really uncomfortable. And so I think on some level, like we, we all have an obligation to become better critical thinkers and and to not hold on to absurd ideas in the face of better answers and yet very few of us deconstruct those things in our life until until our reality gets very uncomfortable and something begins to feel wrong or hurt us or we see it hurting others and we have some level of developed empathy towards that person who's different than me and and so i wonder like like it, it feels like a really difficult thing to just take an individual and say, look, I'm going to give you a three-week course. And at the end of that three-week course, you're going to be a rational thinker 
Um, how, how do we get people to sense that their beliefs are are not rational? How do we get people to sense, um, to, to have tools to begin to take beliefs apart and to say like, okay, I hold on to this belief that Bigfoot is real. I hold on to this belief that the Republican Party is right most of the time. I hold on to this belief that Barack Obama was the best president ever. I hold on to this belief that, you know, whatever it is, and, and how do we get people to let their ego, their biases, their preference go by the wayside a little bit, at least a little bit, and they start to examine their beliefs and begin to kind of say, like, I wonder, I wonder what the truth really is on this particular issue. And here's another question. I'm just worried about, like, how do I even recognize the irrational beliefs in myself? Um, and what tools can you suggest for people who are interested in changing, you know, their beliefs into being more rational? Yes. So uh, to, to answer Bill's question first, I, uh, I, I don't really know the answer to question to how to get other people to, uh, to, to kind of choose the path of truth versus the path of, of happiness and want and desire. Um, there, there's a, a great uh, video series on YouTube that's called Street Epistemology. And uh, the, the guy that does that street epistemology, he has kind of this qualifying question that he essentially what he's doing is kind of the Socratic method, where he's just asking questions about a person's strongly held belief and uh, kind of their their level of confidence in that belief, and then ask them a bunch of questions. And uh, oftentimes, by the end of the conversation, where he asks them again, "What's your level of confidence?" Their level of confidence kind of goes down because they realize they don't have very good reasons for for believing in. Um, in that really strongly held belief. But the qualifying question that he asks people is he says, if it weren't true, would you want to know? If lollipops don't really cure cancer, would you really want to know that? If coconuts don't really call down supply planes, would you really want to know that? And I think that that's actually the dividing line that helps determine whether or not somebody is even willing to look in the other direction. To say, hey, I... um, I want to believe that lollipops cure cancer, but I'm open to seeing how lollipops possibly don't cure cancer. Now you've got somebody who's actually willing to look at their own beliefs and see if their beliefs are rational. But if somebody is just completely unwilling and says, look, I really truly just, it makes me really happy to, to believe that lollipops cure cancer. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's a single thing. And it's kind of like the way that you described uh, your parents, where it doesn't matter what the information is. It doesn't matter what the data is. It doesn't matter what the, the, the objective evidence is. None of those things matter to somebody who doesn't really want to know if their beliefs are wrong. And so um, I, I, don't, I don't even know where to go with something like that, where somebody starts out from the beginning saying, I don't care if my beliefs are false. Right. I don't, I don't think there's anything that you could possibly say to them to, to change that position. So qualifying question would be, do you even care? Would you care if your beliefs are false? Right. Like when somebody says, when you ask somebody, do you really want to know if your belief isn't true? Yeah, they're, they're actually saying the statement you just gave, which is, I don't care if my beliefs are false. That's really the response when they when they respond that they don't really want to know if their if their belief is true or not like they don't they don't care how do how does someone like me who may not even recognize that my thinking is irrational move to a space where i'm willing to 
evaluate um, or even be confronted with the possibility that my beliefs are irrational? And and what tools can you provide or suggest for someone, you know, who's who's maybe wanting to move into that space of how can I shift my thinking? Yes. So uh, th- this is kind of like the, the second half of the outline. We're talking about what is rationality. And I think that this will answer the question of what I believe are the tools that we need to uh, evaluate data more rationally. Um, and so uh, we can ju- just kind of jump to that point and go from there. And we'll just, by the time we're done, we'll basically have talked about all the, you know, highlighted all the, the, the points that I think are the tools that uh, lead us to, to evaluate data more rationally. Um, the, the first thing that I think is actually a really important point, and I love uh, when I when I see Bill uh, point this out for other people online, different different chat groups and different things like that, is that rationality is not ontological. And what I mean by that is that um, just because something is rational doesn't necessarily mean that it is the true answer. It doesn't. It, it's we we hope. Our hope is that, and we have good reasons to believe that what is rational is also what is true, but there's not, there's no guarantee. And so, so th- this is actually something I think is very similar in the Eastern and Western uh, uh, philosophies of enlightenment, that what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach that concept of ultimate reality, right? It's like scientists have been working on the, the answer to everything sort of thing where we all want to kind of understand how reality actually works. And that's the goal, but we have to kind of, uh, you know, set our expectation that just because something is rational does not automatically mean that it is true. We just have good reasons for believing that it might be the case. No, no, I, 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 I understand that, right? Like you and I have talked before that, just because something seems to be the most believable way in which something worked out, that there's, as you've said recently, the least amount of conjecture needed for this answer, then that answer becomes the most rational answer. But, but it's always possible that new evidence comes out, and when that new evidence comes out, we're going to have to change our position, and it will be something other than the answer we thought it was. But as you also point out, Spencer, that that in life, if we're going to be rational beings, we have no choice but to go with the answer that we think requires the least amount of conjecture at every twist and turn. And the moment we presume that an answer with more conjecture needed is the right answer, prior to the evidence coming out that says that that's the right answer, we're always being irrational. Yes, there there are times like looking at certain you know situations. I go, you know, it seems like my desire, my want, kind of draws me to an answer that I know is not the most rational answer. I'm having to uh, assume uh, causes that are just simply not supported by the evidence. And so, and if I were looking at it and I go, oh, you know what, I I'm pretty pretty sure this is what's actually going on, but I can't substantiate that with the evidence. And so even though I really, really want that to be the right answer, even though I'm assuming that might be the right answer, that doesn't, there's, there's no guarantee one way or the other. I don't, I don't have a guarantee that the right answer is the, the rational answer or the irrational answer. And I might actually be right with my, with my irrational, you know, you know, non-supported theory about what's actually going on. But 
I still end up having to kind of draw myself back and go, okay, but I have to just go with the data. I have to go with what's actually supported and what's not requiring me to step out, you know, into to unnecessary conjecture. Um, and so, I, you know, rationality, what, what is rationality? That's kind of the, the, the main question. Like, how, how do we define rationality? And I think that the, the key with rationality is that we, uh, like, I, I don't believe I actually came up with a new definition for rationality. If you look in the dictionary, the, the definition for rationality kind of just gives you a bunch of synonyms. It just says it's reasonable, it's, it's logical, whatever the case is. But that's actually just kind of a circular definition for rationality. Um, because if you have to define reasonable, then reasonable, you would say rational. And so you haven't really said, you, you haven't objectively landed on what rationality is. All that said, most of the time, most of us can very easily and simply tell when a when an explanation is a rational explanation versus when it's an irrational explanation. And uh, recently, uh, Bill and I were kind of going back and forth on this example. Uh, some, somebody else had given me this example, uh, but they were talking about, well, let's just say you're out in uh, in a in a cabin out in the woods, and you hear some kind of rattling up on the the tin roof, and so you have you know, you can have many, many different possible explanations for that. But comparing the two explanations of a raccoon versus an alien from, you know, from another uh, another planet, um, intuitively, we all recognize that the more rational explanation there is the raccoon, not the alien. And so the question then comes in, why do we know that the raccoon is more rational than the alien? What, what is it about the raccoon explanation that we go, oh, yeah, intuitively, I already know between those two of them. It would be crazy to think that it's an alien up on the roof. And so that's... But, but I think it's more complicated than that, Spencer, and here's why. So my dad and my brother both believe in aliens, um, not because there was a uh, rattle on the roof, but because my dad and my brother both, in their own experiences separately have uh, seen uh, a light in the sky that moves in weird ways and, and moves in ways that you and I would go, that's not an airplane, that that's not a comet, it's not a meteor, it's not a helicopter, um, it is changing direction, it's coming really close, it's stopping, then it goes further away. And, and so I'm, I don't believe in aliens. I understand that there has to be a better explanation out there because in all of the age of modern history, and especially in the age now we have recording devices, and yet we have so little evidence. And on top of that, I'm also going to disagree with myself by saying, like, just recently, there is a video that came out where the, uh, I don't know if it was NASA or the Air Force or what, but they're acknowledging that there is a craft uh, near them that they have no explanation for, and this is this is the the military and NASA that's saying this. So on some level, like oh, there might be something that we still don't have a great explanation for. It could be a um, some type of new development craft out of another country. We we don't know. My point being is I don't believe in aliens, and yet there is on some level evidence on both sides, and the degrees of strength of that evidence vary. And whatever position you hold, you tend to give weight to that side. And so my dad and my brother are adamant that aliens are real and they have no better explanation. I'm adamant that they're not. And yet the evidence 
to some degree is fuzzy and messy and, and either side can really pull their strength of their argument from somewhere. It's more than just a rattle on the roof and saying that could it's probably a raccoon, it could be an alien, I'm going to go with alien, because I agree with you, that's deeply irrational. But what about these situations where people feel like the evidence is complicated, messy, and on both sides, and they tend to hold a belief that that's something that and somebody else says that's absurd, and yet they hold it as true. Yes, and so I, I think that there's an important point that you're drawing out of this, uh, which is that you say you don't think that it was an alien on the roof because you don't even believe in aliens to begin with, right? And so, so it would seem irrational to you because you're already holding the belief that you don't believe in aliens. But what that's actually doing is begging the question. You're, you're actually starting with the conclusion in order to conclude that aliens that that wasn't an alien, right? If you start with the conclusion aliens don't exist then you will conclude that that couldn't possibly be an alien. And so it is important to still be, again, just because, of, you know, I may see that the, the belief in aliens is less rational than, or the aliens have visited, you know, the Earth is less rational than that the aliens haven't visited the Earth. But it is an important point to bring out to say, we can't just say, well, because I don't believe in aliens, that doesn't automatically preclude the existence of aliens. But just just to kind of bring a, just a touch more clarity to the, the example of what's on the roof, let's just say instead of aliens, like, because we're talking about I don't even believe in aliens in the first place, let's say that it was the, the question is between a raccoon and uh, George Bush, right? So there's, there's no question. We, we all seem to believe that George, I, I mean, I, I would assume we all believe that George Bush exists, that he's a real person, and he could in theory be up on the roof. But intuitively, we would still look at that and say it's less likely that George Bush is up on the roof than a raccoon, right? And so there's a, re- there's a reason why we intuitively feel that. So even the person who really, really wants to believe in alien, that they might be motivated to assume that that's an alien versus a raccoon. And we can see that bias kind of entering into their thought process that allows them to think that it's just as rational to believe that an alien is on the roof as a raccoon is on the roof. But when we take a situation like George Bush, we're not talking about whether George Bush exists or not. We're just saying, what's the likelihood that it's a raccoon up there versus George Bush being up there? And intuitively, we still kind of can see very simply and easily that it's much more rational. It's much more uh, you know, likely that what's up on the roof is a raccoon and not George Bush. But whether or not aliens exist or don't exist, we're still talking about something. And, and this, is, this is the part that what, what I want to kind of get into in talking about. What are the tools of rationality to say there's still something that makes aliens less likely, whether or not you believe aliens exist or don't exist. Yeah. And, and I think in our day-to-day life, those examples, I think, are good for teaching the point. But in our day-to-day life the reality of the absurd beliefs that each of us hold, we often feel in our minds that the evidence is much closer, right? Like like when somebody chooses to believe, let's just take Scientology, for example. There are hardcore believers in Scientology. There are hardcore believers in Nazism. There are hardcore believers in the Ku Klux Klan. When, when people hold absurd beliefs, they don't think they're absurd and they have inside their mind reasons for why their belief is true and good and right. And for any of us to do introspection on ourselves and say, like, I hold this belief, 
Here's the evidence for why I hold this belief. It is damn difficult to get them or get myself to go like, but let me look at the other side. Let me try to look at the evidence objectively. Let me try to like look at it like it's a scale and I'll put the evidence for this belief over there and the evidence against this belief over there. And oh my goodness, my belief requires so much conjecture that, that it's silly that I hold this belief still. And, and so I, I'm, I'm struggling with how, when the rubber meets the road, how do any of us make a shift in our thinking to get to a point where we're willing to look at our beliefs that we once thought made sense and we thought there was evidence for them and, and to get to a place where we say like, oh, I want to really look at this and, and I'm willing to let it go. Like, how do we become willing to let go of the absurd things we hold on to in our life? Yeah. And I, I think that that question of how do how we move somebody else to become willing, I think it goes back to that qualifying question that the street epistemology guy says, where he, he essentially goes, do, do you care if your beliefs are wrong? And that if somebody, if somebody is not even willing to concede that, you know, the, the, under no circumstance, they, they, you know, I, I hear people very frequently say, I know my beliefs are true and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change my mind that they're, they're already starting from the conclusion that their beliefs are true. And all of the evidence in the world makes absolutely no difference. And so there's no, there's no way to get a person who is unconvinced by evidence to change their perspective based on evidence. Right? There's, it's, it's impossible. So somebody who's already starting, and, and in, that, in, in the same regard that we were talking about the aliens and say, well, I, it couldn't be an alien because I don't believe aliens are even real in the first place. I, I know that that's not your reasons for concluding it's probably not an alien, but if somebody were to say that that is the reason for concluding it's not an alien, they're essentially doing what's called begging the question. They're starting from the conclusion and then working backwards. They're starting from their belief and working backwards, saying it can't be an alien because I don't believe aliens are real, right? And so there's 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 no way unless they're you know be convinced by the evidence otherwise, and you can show evidence that aliens exist and that there was an alien up on the roof. Um, somebody who's starting from the perspective to say, I don't even believe in aliens to begin with, therefore it can't be an alien, is essentially you're starting with the conclusion and then working yourself to the conclusion. Somebody who says, I believe in Scientology, I believe in the claims of Scientology, and therefore Scientology is real, or true, or whatever it is that they you know, derive, um, there, there's nothing you can do to break that cycle because they're starting with the conclusion that the belief is true. And so, so fundamentally, it has to come back down to that kind of qualifying question. Do you even care if you're wrong? And what would you do to know whether or not it was, how, how, would, you, how would you start from a, from a different perspective? Instead of saying, I'm going to start with the conclusion, I'm going to start with the data. And so it's the same sort of thing. I, the, I, I conclude in my mind that lollipops cure cancer, and then I'm going to spend the rest of my life believing that lollipops cure cancer. And all data that contradicts that is going to be irrelevant to me because I don't even care. I don't really actually care if lollipops don't cure cancer. I just want to believe that lollipops cure cancer, as opposed to somebody else who says, what are the, what are the cures for cancer? What, what, what makes cancer, you know, removes cancer from a body? And so that's not starting with the conclusion. That's just starting with what's, what's the data that supports a, a conclusion. And so the, the person who is starting with the conclusion and then works with the conclusion, I just don't think that there's something that's going to change their mind. 
until they get to some point in their life where they actually care about what is actually going on as opposed to caring more about their, their belief, they're going to be stuck in that way of thinking for their entire life. It's, it's not going to break. Well, well, I think as I try to wrap my head around rational thinking, where I come down is that you can't think of it like we. I want to get me and I want to get the rest of the world to deconstruct their worldview and always arrive at the right answer, the answer being whatever the truth really is. Instead, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to get me, I'm trying to get myself, and and the audience is trying to get themselves to be willing to be as rational as they possibly can be. We all have limits in the information we have. We all have biases. We all have... Um, certain evidence that we our brain tells us to give preference to what you're asking is for people to be willing to go where they think the data give, gets them and and that's still going to be the wrong answer sometimes but it's better than just saying this belief makes me happy i'm going to hang on to it forever instead it allows them to at least be willing to chase down the truth as they perceive it knowing that we're going to continually make more and more mistakes um, as we do that anyway. Yes, I totally agree with what you just said completely. Yes. So then the question comes up so that if you're willing to chase the data, if you're willing to say, hey, my belief could be wrong, I would like to know if I'm wrong, then how do we go about doing this? I think this gets to Mikhail's question now to say, what do we what do we do if we're willing to actually chase the data as opposed to just clinging to our belief? I, so the, the, the first key, the first step of saying, I'm willing to chase the data, is that you must go with what is measured. So, and by, by measurement, some, sometimes people uh, don't like my use of the term measurement. They would prefer observation. But I think that measurement actually still de- perfectly defines what we're going for here. So rationality, when we say, what, what is rationality? We can say it's reasonable, that's just a synonym, that's kind of a circular definition. But what rationality is, objectively, is an explanation. So rationality is a, uh, you, you, you actually don't start with an explanation, you start with, with data, you start with measurement. I, uh, you know, I'm a subjective being, I take in information via my senses, and those sens- sensations tell me something about reality. And so I, I, I could be totally wrong, right? I, even, even the idea, maybe I'm Neo in the Matrix, right? I'm, I'm a brain in a vat, essentially. And everything that I see, when I see the noodle shop, when I go to work, when I pay my taxes, you know, uh, that uh, none of those things are actually real uh, to Neo in the sense that he's actually just a body sitting in, you know, kind of gelatinous goo in a little pod somewhere. And so all of those sensations are telling him something and he has to evaluate those sensations. But he, it's, it's actually, and we, we can get into this, but maybe not, uh, not really that important right now. The, the point is, is that it's actually rational for Neo to believe that there's actually a noodle shop there. It's actually rational for Neo to believe that he's going to work in, you know, at a computer company, whatever, because that's what he is measuring. 
He's, he's measuring those things and he has to evaluate those things. And so we can't, we, as much, if we were to deconstruct the framework of every possible conceivable bias and, and everything that you can possibly think of in how you can actually land down on what is actually going on in reality, the one thing you can't deconstruct is the sensory perception, the stimulus that you are receiving. You can, you can deconstruct the assumption that it's true, that it's true just because you're, uh, just because you're experiencing it. But you can't, you can't change the fact that I have no other way of, of accessing reality if I deny the, uh, the validity of my sensory experience. And so the very first thing that has to start is I have to start with the data. And so I, I can't escape this. It's inescapable. Yeah, it seems – and Mikkel had to drop off the call. She had to go somewhere here at 9. Um, but as, as her and I are kind of texting behind the scenes as you and I are talking, it, it seems as though the, the best I can do is when I, when I am in, confronted with a belief that I sense is being challenged. In other words, I, I hold a belief and I can tell that there are others in this world who are, are looking at my belief as being irrational. It's because all of our beliefs seem rational until we are confronted with the possibility that they're not. When I when confronted with the possibility that my belief is irrational, it seems as though what I can do is I can I can look myself in the mirror essentially and say, "What is my evidence for my belief? Um, what is that evidence?" And and then I can run through my head and go, "Here's my evidence for that belief." Now here's the part where I have to take my ego out. I now have to go. For those who criticize my belief as irrational, what is their evidence that my belief is not true? And does their perspective or my perspective require more or less conjecture? And so the moment I'm willing to do that as objectively as any human possibly can, and we all do it to varying degrees, some of us are going to still choose, even if we want to know the truth. Some of us are still going to choose the irrational belief. And some of us are going to somehow figure our way out to the truth. And all of that's messy. But it feels like the best we can do is for every person to be willing to at least look at that belief, to, in their mind, weigh the evidence on both sides objectively as they can, and then to choose the conclusion that requires the least amount of conjecture knowing that that's still a messed up process that we're sometimes going to get wrong. And so if every one of the listeners who are listening to this episode, when they're confronted with challenges to their beliefs, if they can try to take their ego out and weigh the evidence on both sides, what the, what the critic says about their belief and what they think the strength of evidence is for their belief, and then to go with whatever conclusion requires the least amount of conjecture, even when they perceive the evidence as close, to be a rational thinker, you have to pick the conclusion that requires the least amount of conjecture, no matter how much you want the other belief to be true, and no matter how um, close that evidence is, right? Yes, 100%. Yes, and I, and I think this kind of gets back to your your question about the the simple examples versus the, the messy reality, 
right? So that that yeah, it's easy to tell that it's probably a raccoon versus versus George Bush up on the the, the roof, right? Because that that we're we're drawing a contrast between two things that are quite likely and something that's highly unlikely, right? And so then what the question Yeah, the entire audience knows that George Bush is just, that's absurd. Yeah. And so if we said it's a raccoon or a baby bear, right? It's a baby black bear out in the middle of the woods or a raccoon. Yeah. Most of us in our head go, it could be either one, but it seems to require less conjecture that it's a raccoon. Both of those seem feasible. Both of those seem reasonable on some level. Yeah. But it feels as though a raccoon requires less conjecture. Now, there could be evidence out there that points to baby bears actually climb onto roofs more often than raccoons. But until I know that evidence, it feels like a raccoon would be the the answer with the least amount of conjecture. And so we're asking the audience to say, like, even when it's close, pick the item that has the least amount of conjecture. And when new evidence comes in, then feel free to change your mind. But that's what it means to be a rational thinker. Yes. Uh, and, and I wanted to add one point on this, too, with the concept of messy and, and like where somebody is saying, well, b- based on this, that, the, you know, you know, if I were to take this fact as true, then it would be more rational that such and such and so and so, whatever. What ends up happening in the, the, the mess of trying to kind of untangle what is actually rational the reality is that we have sort of uh, beliefs that support other beliefs. We kind of, we kind of have a, uh, a house of cards, as it were, when we're trying to build what is rational based on other things that they themselves may not be rational. And so part of this deconstruction process is essentially we, we have to tear down the, the house of cards. We have to say, well, sure, this belief could be rational based on this, but that, that, that premise, that this, that you're saying, well, based on this, then, then the, the second uh, idea is rational. We have to dig deeper and say, well, then what's the, what's the likelihood of that premise being rational? So if we're, if we're building this kind of house of cards to say, I could, I could make anything rational, if I'm allowed to kind of start from uh, some certain premises. And uh, I, I like this example. I, uh, I share this with people uh, frequently where I'll say, okay, one of the most famous uh, syllogisms is about Socrates. They say, uh, all, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That makes perfect sense. There's, there's no problem with that whatsoever. And we can see that it is the logical conclusion of the premise that all men are mortal, and Socrates is a man, that the, the conclusion is logically that Socrates is mortal. But I could start with any premise. I could say all men are cats, and Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is a cat. Right? So I, I actually followed the exact same structure. It's the same, it, it is just as logical to conclude that Socrates is a cat as to conclude that Socrates is mortal if I start with a premise that's, that's crazy, right? To, to say all men are cats. And so so the, the deconstruction of that, there was nothing wrong with the conclusion. I, I actually concluded something. When I said, therefore, Socrates is a cat, I concluded something that is logical. But I started with a kind of a, kind of a crazy premise to begin with. And so the solution to that is to say, okay, I need to go back to my premises and give good reasons for those premises. And then I may have to go backwards again and say, well, the reasons why I feel like these premises are, are, are 
sound. It's for these reasons. And so I need to go back to those reasons and say, well, what are those reasons that allow me to conclude that this reason is logical? Um, and so that, so in the mess of it, we can still see this and, and, you know, still see the whole of it and say, what led you to that conclusion? And why is that, why was that premise rational to begin with? Yeah. And we, each of us struggle so deeply to, to do that. Um, and we ought to realize like, okay, so going back to the roof analogy, if there, if there's a noise on the roof, and we go like, it's, it sounds like something's walking up there. And so then we run through our head and we go, well, it could be a raccoon. That seems logical. Uh, it could be a baby bear. That seems less logical. And then the next morning we get up and we go outside and we realize, oh my goodness, look at that. There's a pine tree right next to the home. And it looks like lots of pine cones fell down that weren't there the night before. Like any time that um, we're having these kinds of conversations in our head about whether our belief is rational or not, we, we ought to just go look for the evidence. And, and so few of us do that, we tend to take for granted what our parents have told us or what a teacher has told us. And, and, we, and you know this as well as I do, when a belief is formed, whoever gets to us first has the strength of position. Anybody who comes after and tries to dissuade us from believing something that's been handed down to us or given to us um, is already has their back against the wall. It's a difficult thing to do. So we have to kind of realize like whatever beliefs we started with, it becomes difficult to see those beliefs as irrational. And we, we ought to understand all the psychology. And again, this becomes difficult, right? For, for the listeners to go and like, I want to deeply understand psychology. I want to deeply understand the mechanisms that my brain goes through to try to maintain beliefs. I want to deeply understand the critical evidence against my belief. Um, all of these things take time and experience. And I think much of it just comes from living life and, and having experiences and essentially going from having knowledge to wisdom and understanding how some of these things work. Um, I've seen conspiracy theories about not having landed on the moon. And when you look at the video, it seems convincing. I've seen documentaries on Bigfoot. And again, based on certain pieces of evidence, you're thinking that seems convincing. We each just need to get to a place where we let our emotional connection to our beliefs, let that go and, and begin to go like, okay, I really want to know how this particular thing works that I believe in. And I, and I want to go read the data on both sides, on all sides, because sometimes there's more than two sides. Um, I want to read the data on all sides. And then I'm going to just formulate the, with the time I have and the energy I'm able to devote to this, this specific topic, I, I want to chase down the answer that has the least amount of conjecture. Um, it, it just is a hard thing when it actually plays out in our day-to-day life. It, it sounds really easy, Spence, when it's when it's a noise on the roof, but it becomes really difficult when when it's a belief that's important to us and we feel like the evidence is even, even though most of the rest of the world would go like, ah, not really close, not really close. Like I used to be part of a religious system where I thought the evidence was at times, overwhelmingly in favor of my beliefs. And then there were other times where I thought the evidence was near um, even. Um, and it wasn't until I kept digging, kept thinking, 
that I realized like, oh, the evidence is actually mounted against my belief and to maintain this belief would require an absurd amount of conjecture that I was able to kind of deconstruct that and move on. And that took years and years and years and years. Um, I, I, I guess I'm just kind of pointing at like for the listener, it's a difficult process. It takes time. And it, like you say, it takes a willingness to go like, all right, I know that thing makes me happy, but I, I'm finally to a point where I, I just want to know whether my belief is true or not. And I want to chase down the answer that requires the least amount of conjecture, even if I have to give something up to do that. Yes. And I, I think that that actually ties back into the conversation about uh, Buddhism and meditation and whatnot, that we, we see that it's essentially the ego that is that is keeping us from seeing reality as it really is. That we, those, those emotions, those wants, those desires for some belief to be true is actually the hindrance, is actually the roadblock to, to reaching that point where you're actually viewing at reality as it actually is. And I think that that kind of goes uh, back also to what we were talking about with the, the House of Cards, where the, the system of belief is built on other beliefs that those earlier beliefs and probably one of the main reasons why it's so hard to go back to dig deeper into those those other beliefs is that those other beliefs are essentially are they're, they're treated as foundational truths that we we start with the belief that this is a belief as well that some belief is unequivocally uh, unquestionably the way that reality works. And then we, we, from that, we build our worldview of how, you know, how we approach the sound on the roof or how we approach the cured cancer or whatever the case is. When we treat that belief as foundational, um, it's hard to go back and look at the, the reasons why you see it as true because the reality is when something's foundational, it's just, it's just kind of like, uh, de facto truth. It's just true because it's true. We have no real reasons. That's what foundational a foundational truth is. And so the kind of scary thing of going through this process is considering that maybe those things that you think are foundational truths, that the, the premises that you use to build your conclusions, your worldview about reality, may not actually be foundational. That they themselves may be something that is questionable and may be actually, just as you say, they're, they're actually take a lot of conjecture to, to arrive at the conclusion that that, that, that foundational, quote, quote, foundational belief is actually uh, true, actually isn't. Yeah. And, and you hit on an important thing kind of at the beginning, and I see it kind of in your wrapping up notes. And I, and I would kind of have to wrap this up, too. I've got to, I've got to get some things here ready for work. So I, I know, Spence, like I know we didn't get into various parts of the outline, um, but I thought the conversation was really good. I, I want, in this podcast, I want listeners, whether it's this topic or other things we cover, to sense kind of a back and forth and disagreement and kind of have a natural conversation of of strong points and weak points and where various people kind of feel in these in these topics. But you started off in the beginning talking about emotion. And essentially, ego is at the root of emotion. Um, my, my being angry, my being sad, my being frustrated. Those are, those are ego-based things happening. Um, you end up here kind of talking about we have to separate emotion from rationality. Emotion tends to detract us, 
tends to get us off track um, from being rational because, you know, there, there, we, our identity is so important to us and the various beliefs that make up that identity are, are so important. And yet some systems and some uh, relationships, some beliefs point at emotion being how we determine whether we maintain that belief or perspective. And so it's even double difficult. And I'm, I'm using, I guess I'm, that's probably not even the right word. It, it becomes exponentially more difficult when we're told that emotion is the way that we gauge truth, when it really, it really is what detracts us from the truth. Yes, exactly. Um, I, um, even in, you know, we we're both raised in the same uh, religious system, and uh, and uh, in in that you know we're, we're taught essentially that concept, and that actually it kind of goes back to what I was just saying about foundational truths that the that the claim of well the the answer comes through your emotions, the idea that you you receive a, a, a the evidence that you need that the claim is true comes via the emotions is actually a foundational truth that's rarely questioned itself. There's just, we start with that assumption that emotions lead to truth. And then uh, when those emotions make you feel good, then that is the, the evidence that you need that the claim is true. But the foundational claim itself is actually not foundational. The, the idea that emotions lead to truth is actually uh, uh, highly unlikely. I mean, you look at just about anything in life where you say, where, where did uh, your emotions lead you to the, the actual truth? And I'll, I'll use this example. Sometimes I'll say, let's put, let's put something in a room and, and we're going to have a contest for a million dollars and you get to use your emotions to, to lead you to the truth of whatever is in that room. And I'm going to go look and we can see nobody's going to take that bet. No one, no one is going to say, yeah, for a million dollars, I will, I will rely upon my emotions to find out what is in that room, as opposed to you going in and just looking at what's in the room with that. We, we don't normally think of it's, it's, it's not just standard everyday living to assume that emotions lead to truth. It's actually a, that is itself a highly conjectured claim to start from that assumption. And so when we're already starting from that highly conjectured claim to arrive at other conclusions based on our emotions, then we have essentially built that house of cards. We've, we've essentially uh, created a system itself, which is just highly. And so you, you can say, well, I feel really good about this every time I, I, you know, I feel that emotion. And you can say, look, it's consistent. It's uh it uh, is, is direct, it's very d different and distinct from my other emotions, but you've built the entire thing on kind of the shifting sand of the belief that emotions lead to truth. And so that's why, again, it's like they're, they're, they believe that they're performing this, this almost scientific experiment where I say, look, cause effect, emotions, truth. And so, therefore, they see, they see this as almost the same thing as a scientist, you know, uh, performing experiments to cure cancer or whatever. And but what's happening is they, they're building the, they're building this off of an incredibly conjectured uh, premise to begin with, and then they're going. You, you can't help but but conclude with a whole bunch of conjecture. Everything else you do at that point is just all of the conjecture from the original premise plus all the conjecture you add at that point. 
And so, so this is why you have to go back to those foundational beliefs, those foundational premises that, that uh, led you to your conclusion and say, what are my good reasons for believing that? What are my good reasons for believing that emotion leads to truth? And if anybody really truly believes that and they want to take me up on the million dollar bet, I will take anybody on that bet any day of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where, can, where can people find your book, Spencer, and where can people find out more about you? Um, so the, the book is available on Amazon and, uh, you, you just do a search for Spencer Wright and, and how to think, um, and, uh, more information on me. I'm on Facebook all the time. We can chat. So feel free to, to jump in and join the conversation anytime you like. Um, I, I did want to, cause I, we're, we're wrapping up here, but I just, I did just want to add in one last thing, which is the idea that uh, going back to this concept that, people are, uh, you know, that there is, there is something that people are deriving from a belief, whether it's rational or not. And, and my point with, with all of this and all of talking about rationality is not to say your beliefs that you hold within yourself and that are not harming other people, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. If, that, if it makes you happy to put coconuts on your ears and, and believe that, that that's going to call down uh, supply planes or whatever, I, I, I don't want to take that away. I don't want to take that, that comfort and security away from you. You, you. Just enjoy your life. If your beliefs are harming other people, I want you to question the, 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 the basis of what is causing you to believe this thing to be true. So as much as as much as people want to believe whatever they want, if it's not spilling into our shared reality, you're, you just you, you be free to just live your life however you want. But for those people who are harming others, or you know, like what we're assuming the the, the listeners of the podcast are doing, that they want to find this, the the emotions, the want, the desire is is the hindrance, is the roadblock to achieving the goal of understanding reality as it really is. Yeah, and, and I'll just. I'll just second that and, and maybe add a little uh, of my two cents. I know throughout this episode that I've tried to kind of butt heads a little bit intentionally so that we could work out, um, kind of sift out some of these ideas and, and to recognize it is messy and to recognize that all of us hold false beliefs and that all of us think we're being rational all the time when in reality we're we're, we're not doing as good of a job as, as we think we are. At the same time, uh, Spencer, I have deconstructed tons of beliefs, not just religious, but political. I've deconstructed, as I used to believe, some of these conspiracy theories myself. And as I've deconstructed all that, what you said would happen happened, which is that my life got much simpler and I was able to devote my energy and my time into the places that were not only more real, but also brought me more happiness. And so while believing Santa Claus is a really happy thing at a certain time in life, not believing in Santa Claus has allowed me to put that time and energy into other places that are real and are also happy. And my life today is super content. I enjoy the way my life looks. And if I would have gone back 10 years ago and you would have said like, look, 10 years from now, you're going to deconstruct all these things and you're not going to believe them anymore. I would have been scared uh, to death and I would have been fearful of what the unknown looked like. And yet having gone through that process, I look back now and go, thank goodness, thank goodness I deconstructed all of these things. 
and that my life is much uh, feels like it's on much more solid footing today, and I'm able to kind of deal with what comes at me in the present moment without all these stories of past and future, all of these labels of what what these things are um, that are now I understand as delusions. And I am a much more content, happy, peaceful person uh, who really enjoys his life. And so I, I just want to second, while I disagreed with you in the podcast, I fully acknowledge that you're pointing to a truth, which is that generally speaking, collectively speaking, the more we as a society and an individual can get away from all of these delusions and get closer to reality, we actually spend our time and energy making real positive differences in this world that we couldn't even fathom before because our lens was so small and our worldview was so short-sighted. Yes, I could not agree more. And I, I just want to add on the, the, the kind of you know, butting heads and pushing back a little bit. I think that butting heads and pushing back a little bit is probably one of the best ways to achieve enlightenment. There's a, there's a, a joke meme that kind of floats around where you see the Buddha sitting there and he goes, yeah, the quickest way to enlightenment is to argue with people on Facebook. And, you know, it's meant to be a joke. It's meant to be, of course, arguing and, and debating people on Facebook doesn't lead to enlightenment. I, I actually disagree with that conclusion. I think that, dis that disagreement is actually one of the best ways to achieve this. We, we, have, we, we already acknowledge we all have these biases. We all have these desires and wants and, and our ego and wishing that the reality was a certain way. And the person who disagrees with you obviously disagrees with you because they don't have that same bias. They don't have that same desire and want that you have. And so I, I look at it as a fantastic you know, blessing, a benefit to have somebody disagree with me because that allows me to kind of look into the mirror and see my own biases. That if you, if you disagree with me, it's because I'm seeing something with a bias and you're not. It doesn't mean you don't have biases. It just means you don't have the same bias. And so, um, so, so, so absolutely, disagreement is one of the best things in the world. Of course, people should be nice, right? People should be friends and, and, and dis disagree you know, nicely. But at the same time, we can't, you're, you're creating a, a, a silo of delusion if you only talk to people who completely 100% agree with you. Um, and also what you said about happiness, I couldn't agree more to that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of saying this is a sort of a scary thing to have to choose the path or choose the path, choose the path of truth, choose the path of happiness or choose the path of truth. Um, but I, I think the path of truth leads that to genuine happiness that, that when I, just as you explained for yourself, I feel exactly the same way. I feel like my life is in so many ways, so much simpler, so much happier, so much more peace I'm much more contented than when I kind of believed in Santa Claus. I could not agree more. That the, the path of truth does not mean you have to choose to not be happy. It just means you have to accept reality as it really is. Yeah, and I think two things, and then we'll just finish up here, which is, yes, the backfire effect is real. Yes, confirmation bias is real. Yes, belief persistence is real. Yes, elevation emotion is real. Yes, all of the mechanisms that cause each of us to hold on to our irrational beliefs, presuming them to be rational, um, those mechanisms are real. And we rarely change somebody's mind in the moment as we debate and disagree and argue about things. At the same time, every deconstructed belief that I've gone through, every instance where I've deconstructed a system, a belief, a perspective, a label, an identity, 
I've done that because over the course of the long haul, it became apparent because of the debate and the disagreement and the evidence being thrown out on all sides, it became evident to me that my positions were weaker than another possible position to hold. And so while in the moment, arguing or debating or disagreeing rarely changes the person's mind, over the course of time in the long run, I think it plays a gigantic role in those who have deconstructed ideas and beliefs. I think all of those people who have done that would look back and point to the fact that over the long haul, their position became untenable and it became, they became aware that it was untenable because of the debates and disagreements and the evidence that the critic kept continually throwing out. Yes. Couldn't agree more. And I am, I am, infinitely grateful to those people who questioned my beliefs. A hundred percent. I have no ill will. I have nothing but gratitude for people who, who asked me questions about what I believe. hundred percent and continue to do. And someone wants to continue to ask me questions and somebody wants to uh, criticize the point that I've made. I hundred percent open to that because I think that that is, is the only way to get past my biases. other human beings are mirrors to me, and I am grateful for that. Beautiful, beautiful. On that note, uh, Spencer Wright, thank you so much for being on the Almost Awakened podcast. Uh, Grateful for the chance to have you here. Folks, check out Spencer's book. It's a beautiful book on how to become uh, more aware of your biases and to start to think in rational terms. Again, letting go of some of those things that that are comfortable, they're important. We think they, they make us ultimately happy, but often are a distraction. Spencer Wright, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much, Bill. And I know Mikkel's already dropped, but thanks, uh, Mikkel, as well. And oh, I was going to mention, just since we've been talking kind of about Eastern philosophy, I've actually also written another book called Understanding the Tao Te Ching, uh, which goes into talking more about kind of the, the happiness that comes from, uh, from choosing to see reality as it really is. Uh, and so it, it, go, it's, it goes right along. I actually wrote this book back some time ago, but it goes along with this, the same thoughts that we've had today, talking about Eastern philosophy and how you can use Eastern philosophy more rationally to, to achieve the same goal. Perfect. Send me links to, to both your books, and I'll make sure that they're put in the episode notes. Listeners, check those out. Uh, again, grateful for you guys joining and listening. And Spencer, thank you for being on. Thank you so much. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman. 